Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amafidon. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I can't even believe we're here today and this is actually happening. And just like Deanna said, I remember back to when we first got in trouble for this and going down to the principal's office and being nervous because I knew I was going to get in trouble for my hair and now no one's going to have to go through that. An emotional day for twin sisters Deanna and Maya Cook as they watched Governor Baker sign the Crown Act into law Tuesday afternoon. For many young black girls and women, fear and shame have been entwined with their hair, told in school and the workplace that their hairstyles are inappropriate or unprofessional. The Crown Act, which stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair, prohibits racial discrimination based on hair texture and protective styles. Today, girls of color in Massachusetts can hold their heads a little higher. My natural hair was not going to fly in the city of Boston as it did in Atlanta when I was learning school and studying the practice of law. So I did painstaking hours to straighten it so that way we know court and public perception matter if you're trying to represent somebody and protect their rights and their livelihood. And so what you sign today isn't just a piece of paper. It's not just symbolic. It truly is a game changer for black women and folks who have natural hair all throughout our commonwealth. And it matters. So thank you. All ladies. Uh, black, Latino, Asian in particular should not have to show up as though they're white. And that's really the, the, the conversation that we're changing our cultures and our workplace at schools and the like because of the fact that we're trying to match the majority. And so today's bill, what it does is it ends that. And it says that we can show up who we, are, who we naturally are and we can be who we naturally are without having any discrimination. It's important that we celebrate people as they are because then you truly are saying we are all equal because every single one of us and how we show up is unique and beautiful and worth celebrating. It's, it's the first thing you can do if you're trying to oppress somebody or a group of people is to tell them that how they are naturally is not acceptable, is substandard. And that's what a lot of our laws do when they're policing our hair, our bodies, or our skin color. It is a blessing to know that now we can't be judged. We can go anywhere we want to with our hair the way we choose to do it. It's our culture, it's our right, it's my kids' right. Massachusetts is the 18th state to sign the Crown Act into law. In a week full of executive orders, we move on to Michelle Wu, who is giving parents something to celebrate. At City Hall Square this week, Michelle Wu signed an executive order on inclusion of daycare facilities. For over 30 years, IDF zoning regulations have mandated developments of over 100,000 or 150,000 square feet to create on-site childcare programs or contribute to the creation of programs elsewhere in the city. The previous language had been open to negotiation, leading to inconsistency in city enforcement. This Tuesday's executive order provides clear guidelines on developers' contributions to create a stable funding source in expanding high-quality child care programs. The Office of Early Childhood is going to use this funding stream to fund new centers, meet the child care needs of our essential workers by expanding programs that offer non-traditional hours, build business supports for our family child care centers, and invest in upgrades to current facilities that make them safer, more accessible, and address long-standing climate resilience and environmental justice issues. The mayor's new executive order will establish clear transparent, a clear, transparent formula that will allow the BPDA to work with the Office of Early Childhood and the development community to make sure that child care obligations are met 
and to further leverage Boston's strong real estate market for the benefit of Bostonians who need our help the most, in this case, Boston's parents and children. This will better, better enable large developers to invest in our communities and create childcare options for every family in Boston. This order modernizes our zoning language by reflecting the needs of a changing childcare sector, one where families are looking for licensed, high quality care across all of our neighborhoods. And it will help create a more transparent, clear process in collaboration with the BPDA and our Office of Early Childhood. And more good news, this time for seniors who are rejoicing after last Wednesday's $300 million plus landmark budget expanding eligibility and Medicare cost relief. Low-income seniors who turn 65 and enroll in Medicare lose access to state and federal health care subsidies. The fiscal year 2023 budget raises income eligibility from 165% of the federal poverty level to 225%. This increase will make it possible for 15,000 seniors to gain enhanced program benefits as it helps 45,000 gain first-time access to the Medicare savings program. This covers Medicare premiums and lowers prescription costs. Big Poppy is back in the bean town. Well, at least to embrace the love. It was nothing but smiles for David Big Poppy Ortiz, who graced the seaport's tailwind landing on Tuesday. Mayor Wu welcomed the retired Red Sox slugger following Ortiz's Hall of Fame induction on Sunday in New York. After 541 home runs, 632 doubles, and 14 years with the Red Sox, David Ortiz is as baseball and Boston as it gets. Mindy Freed is a sociologist who holds a master and doctorate degree in sociology from Brandeis University. She also holds a master in social work from Syracuse University. We had the chance to sit down and discuss her wonderful podcast, The Shape of Care which is currently in its second season. Check out the interview. So the Shape of Care is a podcast about the world of caregiving, and which is a, a, a very extensive world. So I wanna just um, shoot out a couple of stunning statistics. There are over 50 million people who are caring for somebody, whether it's an older person or a person with a disability in this country. And uh, there are 600,000 certified nursing assistants, people who work in nursing homes caring for an elder. And there are 1.4 million hmm. home care workers who are caring for somebody in the home. So th it's an enormous world. Um, there are so many people doing this work. And yet people often feel alone in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the workers are not connected oftentimes. The people, the family uh, folks who are people who are caring for family members or loved ones or whatever um, are experiencing very similar things, but they're in their little silos doing the very difficult work of caregiving. So the shape of care, um, I first pulled it together um, after I had toured with a book that I wrote about caring for my own dad. Mm. So I cared for my dad for about a year and a half, along with my sister, and um, you know, discovered personally what a really hard, what a really hard job it is, and how important it is. Um, and then I wrote a book about it, which I can tell you more about in a, whenever. And uh, and then I toured with the book and talked to people um, all over the country, and started realizing that this was a universal issue. 
Excellent. And since you mentioned the book, why don't you please tell us more about it? <laughs> um, so the book is called Caring for Red. Um, my father had been a redhead. He also was a member of the Communist Party um, during a period of time, sort of a dark period of time in, in this country's history. Um, and it's really a memoir about taking care of him over this period of time with my sister. Um, you know, the ups and downs of it, but also kind of the universal picture of um, the caregiving world. And um, I felt that it was important to share the story for my own personal reasons, but also I felt that other people might be able to relate. And that's what I discovered when I did a 27 city book tour, kind of mm -hmm. insane, um, talked to people in bookstores and university classrooms and synagogues and churches and all kinds of places. So, yeah. And so the podcast, the whole idea of the podcast was A, to get me off the road. I was tired of traveling. <laughs> and, and B, to um, provide a platform that could reach thousands of people to create this kind of more of a, a platform for connection for people who are doing this important work. That's so beautiful. As you said, there are so many people who are affected by it, and the world is enormous. Um, and what I really appreciate about the podcast is the many diverse voices that are woven in through the, the interviews that you do. Uh, can you talk more about the process of bringing together so many different perspectives and walks of life in the narrative of care that we hear? Well, first of all, of the millions of people who are doing care work for, for pay, um, the majority of are women of color and a large proportion are immigrant women. Um, and I felt that their voices are not heard. Um, the work is low pay. There's high turnover, of course, because it's such low pay. And people don't, I think, get how difficult the work is. Um, it's considered low skill, but it's not. It's, it's, the work is more than a series of tasks. It's about developing a relationship with the person that you're caring for and doing that in a way that helps them maintain their dignity. And that takes a, an enormous amount of skill. Um, so, you know, I, so in, as you say, weaving together these voices, I really wanted to present the total picture you know, what is it like for the people who are providing the care for pay, for people who are caring for loved ones um, as an unpaid uh, kind of uh, responsibility or out of love or obligation? Uh, many reasons people do it. Um, and then what's the big picture? How does that all connect to the system of care that we have in this country, which is very inadequate. Um, the financing is, is really inadequate and people struggle with how to navigate through this, uh, the myriad uh, kind of tributaries of the system in order to be able to care for the people that they love. Hmm. I, it really hit home for me, especially uh, in regard to certified nursing assistants. Um, I, my mother's a, a CNA, my sister's wow. a nurse. Yes, wow. uh, I have a sister in public health and I see that I see the work that they do on a daily basis, and yeah. um, I would love to talk more about uh, the racial disparities in the work. As you said, a uh, majority of CNAs are women and immigrants, so what are, di what are the dynamics that are happening in these environments uh, when it yeah. comes to the workers and the patients? Um, so I'm going to talk about a little bit about 
I'm going to talk a little bit about the relationships between two couples or care pairs in a way who are um, involved with one another. One is Shazia Anwar, who is um, originally from Pakistan. She's a Muslim woman and she's caring for a woman named Darlene Wagenius, who is an evangelical Christian. And Darlene, um, when she needed, realized she needed care, prayed to God in her way that she was, wanted somebody to care for her, anybody but a Muslim. And then she was introduced to Shazia. And the two of them have really navigated their relationship and it's become a beautiful thing. And, the, and Shazia recognizes that she's a woman of color and she's caring for a white woman whose attitudes were really negative. Um, but they've had to overcome that. I've interviewed other professional care workers who have encountered racism in the workplace um, because it's primarily people of color, women of color caring for white folks, not entirely, but that is the profile. Um, and so it's, it's something that, um, it's important to talk about those issues, I think. And the podcast it takes that, that issue and tries to air the issues that are kind of in the air. <laughs> it takes those issues and airs the issue that are really present. And um, thinking more about the seniors, our seniors are living longer. Um, the resources are not entirely available for them as they used to be now that they are living longer lives at the end. Uh, what kinds of long-term care policies do we need in Massachusetts so that anyone can receive quality, affordable care? Well, there are two things that I'll just point out initially. Um, and in fact, there is some action going on in Massachusetts. There was a bill that was filed <clears throat> to create a long-term care social insurance system. Um, I don't know much about it. I know that Mass Senior Action, uh, which is a really awesome nonprofit organization uh, of uh, basically made up of um, seniors who are activists, um, they are working on that bill. Um, in my podcast, I focused on the first long-term care social insurance policy in the er, system in the entire U.S., which is out in Washington state. Mm. And other states are looking at that system. Basically, what will happen is that <clears throat> as people age and need care, as long as they have paid into the system through, you know, small tax out of their paychecks, they will then be vested and able to pull from that system once they are in need of care. Um, unlike Medicaid, which is really a, it's, it's a system for low-income folks, um, this system out in Washington State is for anybody. You could be, and, th and there's a huge group of people, millions of people who are working class, middle class folks who can't afford the care and can't get support through Medicaid. So this addresses that issue. So that's one thing that I think we should be looking at. Um, the other, and this relates to nursing home care, um, there's a model that called greenhouse projects uh, that's basically small homes that provide care for up to 12 people where the CNA, the certified nursing assistant, is really kind of the main person in charge with a lot of autonomy. Um, so because her work is so central to the caregiving 
kind of model. Mm -hmm. And the people who are living in small houses, despite the fact that they may be frail, may have physical uh, challenges or cognitive challenges, have the autonomy to walk out the door and go into a garden and you know, move freely around the place. The, the meals are not cafeteria style or brought to people's rooms. The meals are collective, you know, where people come together and dine together. And there is, there, there is legislation in Massachusetts as well as nationally to really push for this small house model um, in other uh, places besides the ones where they exist. It's, it's more expensive. Um, the problem is that it's funded mainly through Medicaid. Medicaid, um, pays for the bulk of nursing home care and what it pays for is shared rooms mm. and so you know if you can imagine that during COVID it's been a disaster it's part part of the reason why uh, nursing homes have been such an epicenter for COVID because you know people who are working in nursing homes traditional style working homes are going from room to room to room, right. people are sharing rooms. There's so much opportunity for people to transmit the virus. And finally, what do you hope that people take away from the podcast? Uh, how can our viewers listen to the shape of things? <laughs> well, I have a few things I really would hope. Um, one is that I, I hope that the podcast has, is a platform for people who can hear stories that they resonate with so that, that they feel less alone. I, I also, one of our other objectives is to educate people about the whole kind of landscape of care, um, how to navigate the system, how to find the best care for somebody that you're um, caring for, mm -hmm. um, and also, uh, you know, how to, what are the models for people who are standing up for their rights and for better wages and that there are things that are going on around the country um washington state where um the podcast is located in episode in episodes one and two um ha has a very strong union seiu 775 where they have negotiated really good wages for workers, their contracts really fight for workers' rights and so on. And so there's models out there and people should know about that. And then the, the third thing is that I'm hoping that by bringing in national figures uh, like Senator Bob Casey, um, like um, Alex Banco from the Greenhouse Project, like Dr. Ben Vecti, who has done some really remarkable research on social insurance policies for long-term care, that people see places where they could also advocate for better care within the long-term care system. Mindy, it's been a true pleasure, and I, I can't wait for viewers to hear this podcast. It's truly powerful. Uh, oh, thank, thank you so much. And, and great to hear that you have a family of care workers as well. The MBTA, one of the oldest transportation systems in the country, has been in hot water as of late after a string of mishaps, malfunctions, and deadly accidents. Questions of passenger safety and looming investigations abound as city leaders determine next steps. Just last Thursday, an Orange Line train caught fire on a bridge over Mystic River, while Monday bore witness to a runaway Red Line train at Braintree Station. Mayor Wu took time this week to address the state of the MBTA. 
the staffing shortages that we see across every industry are affecting the MBTA and the city and, and private se the private sector as well. So I think we need strong leadership to get to the root of these challenges. We need to see the FTA's oversight uh, implemented very quickly. And we need to aim for above what the FTA would require. We know what we need to do as a system. It's to bring our infrastructure up to date, to fill out the organization, and to give the resources necessary urgently so that riders can have that experience that they deserve. We need to rebuild trust in the system. It would be devastating to our economy if the T runs indefinitely on a weekend schedule during the work week. And so uh, we will continue to partner with them, working through this um, FTA process and trying to define alternatives along the way so that we can support and ease that strain from the city side as well. From the MBTA, we move on to the ubiquitous blue bikes. I sat down with Jeff Bellos, VP of Corporate Citizenship and Public Affairs at Blue Cross Blue Shield, title sponsor of Blue Bikes. Find out why blue bikes are so great for your mental health. Tell me more about the blue bikes journey and what inspired Blue Cross Blue Shield to get involved. So we're very proud to be the, the sponsor of the bike share program um, blue bikes. And um, when we started, as you mentioned, there were four municipalities that own the blue bike program. We are the sponsor of the program and Lyft is the operator of the program. But we were really excited to, to grow the program. And we're really committed to helping Massachusetts residents lead healthy lives and to stand as an ally in strengthening the overall health of our communities. So when we signed on as the new sponsor for the uh, public bike share program, we were excited to help expand the bike share access. As you mentioned, it grew from you know um, a, a small number to over 4,000 um, across communities that particularly those communities that had long been asking for the program. Mm. And we were thrilled that the program aligned really well with our company's commitment to healthy living and to environmental sustainability. So Blue Bikes really serves as a catalyst uh, for empowering our fellow citizens to live healthy, active lives. And speaking of health, what are some of the benefits of biking? And can you share its connection to mental health? I mean, there's so many benefits to biking, you know, getting outside, uh, you know, being active, um, having, you know, it just opens up your mind. It just makes you feel a lot better. And, you know, we, we're all continuing to be impacted by so many stressful issues, uh, you know, the, the continued pandemic being one of them. So it can be really, really beneficial to find some quiet time to get outside, to get some exercise, to clear our minds. This Sunday of the 24th was International Self-Care Day and Blue Bikes yeah. offered unlimited adventure passes at no cost to Boston riders throughout the day. Uh, yeah. So do you happen to know how many uh, bike riders actually got to take advantage of it and what other self-care mental health uh, mental health days does Blue Bikes offer? Absolutely, yeah. Blue, we were really honored to, to sponsor for the first time the uh, self-care cycle initiative um, this past Sunday, um, which aligned with the International Self-Care Day, as you mentioned. So as part of the initiative, we sponsored free what we call adventure passes across the blue bike system. So riders were able to access free adventure passes, which allowed for two hours of free ridership all day long on Sunday. And we're really proud to use the blue bike sponsorships to really help shine a light on the importance of prioritizing mental health, self-care and overall well-being. So the self-care cycle initiative really reinforces our commitment to improving the overall well-being 
of our communities across the Commonwealth. And despite a very, very hot, uh, the very, very hot weather on Sunday, we had almost 150 adventure passes redeemed throughout the day. Oh. So it was really a great way, you know, great to see so many folks take advantage of this and to prioritize mental health and self-care as part of their routine. I was definitely one of those 150 and I was happy to oh, sweat good. for a good cause. <laughs> That's great. I'm so happy to hear that. That's wonderful. I, you know, I, I was not in Boston on Sunday, but I do like to, to take the bikes out um, when I'm there for work during the week. Um, and I use it actually specifically for getting around, you know, getting from meetings to meetings. I'm out and about a lot of meetings and it is a really fast way to get to places as well as, you know, giving you that release, that mental health, you know, release as well. So. That's great. He, he practices yeah. what he preaches. Yeah, so exactly. in regard to biking, what are some of your favorite places to bike in Boston? Oh yeah. Gosh, I, I, I think I have a lot. I, I would say probably my number one favorite place to bike is, is along the Esplanade. It's so fun to be there. You know, you get the cool breeze from the, the, from the rivers, but particularly on hot summer days like we've been having. And also, you know, shady spots to sit and stop and, you know, just to be restful. And, and also, I, I love the vistas that you see along the river and the people out on the, on the river, you know, whether they're rowing or they're on a boat or, you know, uh, you know in a kayak or something. So it's really fun to, to get out there. It's one, probably one of my favorite spots. And especially right now uh, with the MBTA having some issues uh, with its use and really trying to get people on bikes to explore alternative means. What types of programs are available so that people of all walks of life and financial means can get on a bike if they want to? Yeah, it's a really great program. We try to do a lot of um, um, programs that, that incentivize people to be on the bikes. We, a lot of activation um, campaigns to, to bring, you know, bring the bikes to different communities or to get people who normally don't ride the bikes to, to be engaged in riding the bikes. It, it, it is, as you mentioned, um, it is really a great alternative mode of transportation for people. And that really came to life w when the pandemic was really, you know, in full effect. Um, people were um, felt safer riding the bikes than maybe getting onto a crowded train or or onto a bus. So ridership did go up a lot during COVID. I think people like you know they were outside. They felt you know better about being outside, being in their own space, and not in crowded, you know, crowded public transportation. So it really was a good alternative for that. We do have an income eligible program that that um, and, you know encourages people of different income levels to to be a part of the program and do it at a, at a, at a rate that they can afford. Okay. And then um, we do partner with a, the, some of the community health centers around access to the, the bike share programs. They've been great partners to us too in promoting to their, their, um, their, um, the residents in those communities, you know, uh, access to bikes and why it's important and, you know, their patients there that go there for, for, um, for their health care, you know, just really encouraging them to be uh, take advantage of the of the blue bikes programs. All right, blue bikes and uh, blue bikes. It's made good on its uh, goal to get all of the neighborhoods blue bikes uh, by the end of 2021. So we saw High Park being added to the list of neighborhoods and additional uh, stations being added in Mattapan. Uh, what's next in regard to blue bikes initiatives? Yeah, that was a big part of when we, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when we um, started the program, we really wanted to expand it to the communities that didn't necessarily have access in the past to to bikes. 
Um, and that sometimes even um, encouraged uh, us to uh, um, be share, we did a lot of how to ride a bike program. So a lot of people in the inner city don't have access to bikes. And so they never really learned how to ride a bike. So we we really encouraged people. We partnered with people in the community to, to, to help other residents learn about biking and why it's important and how to do it safely. That was a big part of our, of our initiative. Um, so really great question. What, what is next? Um, I think that we, um, what's, what I really love about this program is we really have tried to do new things and, and encourage people to get involved and do a lot of activation. And we get a lot of calls from other cities across the country that are looking to replicate what we're doing here in Greater Boston. And for uh, residents who are interested in getting on a bike but are, are hesitant, uh, what words would you have for them? You know, sometimes it's good to get outside of your comfort zone and try something new. And I think that you know, you can pick a, a, a station maybe that is in, a, in not a high traffic area. So maybe don't pick a, a station that's right downtown. Maybe pick one that's in a neighborhood. There, I will say the bikes are very, very sturdy. They're very safe to ride. They're very easy to, to navigate. They have um, the, the, the gearing system is very easy to change. So you can make the, the pedaling as, as comfortable for you as possible. Well, yeah. words to live by, get out of your comfort zone. Exactly. Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. And here's to seeing you out in Boston on a bike. I'm gonna look for you when I'm out next. <laughs> thank you so much, I appreciate the time. Thank you for tuning in. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amafidon. I'll see you on Monday.